If you had the scriptures, your scriptures, please turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. And I'll be reading verses 18 to 25. Hear the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And their husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this portion of your word, Lord, and for the opportunity to spend a little bit of time in it, considering it this morning, and seeking to learn what you would have us from your holy scriptures. So, Lord, be with us, be with me as I bring your word, the word of God, to the people of God. Hear our prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus, the name above all names. One of the things we read and we read last night was there is nothing impossible with God. I would add one thing. It is impossible for him to sin. He is absolutely perfect. But we see the Lord working. We have Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and he takes upon himself human nature. God did that. We have Christ being born to Mary, a virgin, as the Holy Spirit came over her. Certainly these are two unusual events for us as human beings. But the Word of God tells us that nothing is impossible with God. And as I looked at this particular passage, I looked at uh, Joseph and Mary and saw their reaction when both of them were notified by an angel, Mary, that the angel would overcome her, as it were, 
And her natural re reaction was, I really don't understand how that happens. But she didn't need to understand it because, was because God was working in her and she did accept it. She went away and spent some time with Elizabeth, who was a mother of John the Baptist and about three months away. And also Joseph, thinking for a while that he might want to divorce her quietly. He was a, a principled man, a man of great integrity. And the last thing that he wanted to do was to, to shame Mary in any way whatsoever. But again, an angel of the Lord comes and speaks to him. And he accepts the fact that his wife, she's been, they've been betrothed, they've been committed to each other, and it lasts for about a year. And then after a year, after that betrothal takes place, then the man will come with an entourage to pick up their wife. But he's not able to do that. He's not able to do what naturally occurs over in the Middle East in Israel at that time. So he had to wait. He had to wait. But he understood uh, the, the gravity of what was taking place in human history. It reminded me of a passage that comes from Proverbs because uh, there's a, well, it's called wisdom literature, so it's very wise. It is good to wait on God. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Trust in the Lord. Joseph and Mary trusted in the Lord to do exactly what the angel had said. Different from every event in all of human history except this event. But they trusted, and I think it says something to us. Sometimes we're ready to act if things don't go our way. Maybe we're ready to say difficult things to, about people or whatever the case may be. But I think the wisdom literature there in, uh, in that I just recorded, that, that I just uh, read, Trust in the Lord. Be careful. Be a person of integrity. Think through the issues before acting upon them. I think that's one of the things that we find from the life of Joseph and also from Mary. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but follow his ways and he will acknowledge and he will make your way straight. There are two names that are given to Jesus, and that's the thrust of the passage today. Two names. His name is Jesus, and the name of Jesus means that he will save his people from their sins. One of the things I think we need to understand in this world today, Jesus doesn't save us from everything. As much as we would like that, he doesn't save us from everything. He doesn't save us from sorrow. There's a lot of sorrow in the world, and sometimes, as we go through that sorrow, we are shaped and, and, and molded in the way that, that Christ wants us to be, and the Holy Spirit working within us, because uh, who suffered? Who, who suffered sorrows? The Lord Jesus Christ, the things that he went through, that we might live and live and have life abundantly, his death on the cross, the most horrible death that anyone could imagine, but he was a man of sorrows. And he went through that. We're not going to have to go through the same things that Jesus Christ went through, but we will go through sorrows, perhaps loved ones that we, both my parents are deceased, and, 
And I know how, how sorrowful I was when that happened. I remember when my dad died and, and I, I, I wept so much. And yet after a period of time, after about three days, the Lord gave me such peace that we were singing after the funeral, we were singing hymns to his glory and praising God for he had worked a mighty work in my father's life. Some of you have lost perhaps children while still in the womb, a miscarriage, and you've suffered sorrow and grief over that. The sorrow of losing someone, the sorrow of perhaps losing a job that you have worked so hard for, but it's no longer there. You've been replaced by a, a robot or whatever the case may be. There are all sorts of sorrows or, or telling a mother and a wife that their husband, most of the time, their husband is not coming back from the battlefield. And you see the tears and you see the, you see the hurt and the pain that will always be remembered by the wife and the mother and the children to have that announced to them. That they're serving the country, but their father and husband will not come home again. Life is full of sorrows. Full of sorrows. It's been that way since Genesis 3, when man rebelled against God. And as a result of that rebellion was excluded from the garden, they would experience death themselves. And as progenitors of the human race, they would pass along to their offspring the same rebellious spirit before a holy and sovereign God. There's also, Jesus is not going to deliver us from conflict. Sometimes we find a lot of conflict. Sometimes it's in the family, a lot of conflict in family. Sometimes it's even in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We find conflicts among brothers and sisters in Christ. We find conflict in the public arena. All around the world, we see wars and rumors of wars. There's conflict everywhere. Jesus is not going to deliver us from all of those. We're going to have to go through some of them, and we're going to suffer through the process. But nevertheless, even in those times of sorrow, even in those times of conflict, the Lord is teaching us something. He's shaping us. He's making us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things that Jesus Christ went through, we don't have to go through all of them, but some of them we're going to go through because in the Sermon on the Mount it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. It's been counted on you not only to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, but also to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ doesn't deliver us from all our sorrows as much as we would want him to. He doesn't deliver us from all of the conflicts that we might find ourselves in in this world today. But the one thing that we do know, that this God, wherever we are, he is with us. He has promised that he will never relieve us nor forsake us. Never. Our friends may forsake us. Family members may, may forsake us. But the living God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will never forsake his people. What he will do 
And what he has done is that he will save us from our sins and give us new life. So we have the sorrows and the conflicts, but he saves us from our sins and he gives us new life. As a student of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Larger and Shorter Catechism, you know the uh, definition of sin. It is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. So we can oftentimes, we can see the transgression part, but oftentimes we hear the commands of God and we really don't listen to those commands. We go our own way. We want to do our own thing. And when we go our own way to do our own thing without any regard for the things of God, we transgress the law of God by omission. Not only by commission, but omission. I've got several things I want to just bring to your attention in that regards. As saved sinners, we are free from the guilt of sin. Free from the guilt of sin. That load that we carried, sometimes, some of us, to adulthood, that load, that guilt that weighed us down, God has removed it from us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We no longer have to go around feeling guilty. We confess our sins each and every day, maybe multiple times during the day. Those sins are forgiven and the guilt is removed. He did it by washing us with his blood. That's what it cost for us to be forgiven, for us to be relieved of the guilt that weighed us down. The blood of the second person of the Trinity, perfect in every way, died that we might be forgiven. He saves us from the dominion of sin. From the dominion of sin. He's sanctifying us. I, I love that passage in John. Well, in John chapter 18, Jesus says, I came to testify to the truth. Thy word is truth. You are sanctified by the truth, by the word of God. You have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And the Holy Spirit is, is directing our path. Oftentimes, <laughs> he's always leading us from evil. But he's teaching us to not walk in that way. We're to walk in the way of Jesus Christ. We're not walking, we are not to walk in the way that we want to walk. We want to be on that narrow road that leads to a lot toward life and not on that broad road that leads toward death, destruction, and hell. He sanctifies us by the work of his Holy Spirit. He gives us grace and mercy, unending. He also saves us from the presence of a day of sin and a day when he takes us into his new heavens and new earth, we're in God's righteousness, where finally, finally, we will have rest. We will have rest. Death is a 
horrible thing. It's described as our last enemy in this world. It's our last enemy. But thanks be to God that he has overcome death. He was risen from the grave. He lives. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is fully God and fully man. And he is in his, his body, the same body that he had here, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And we will see him in all of his glory. Now, I'll say to you, I'm looking forward to the rest. But I am a little bit older than most of you, if not all of you. But it's a rest. It's a rest in the presence of God. I can rest in the presence of my family. When I was in the military, out in the field, sometimes I could rest when I had a number of hard-charging soldiers around me. I could rest... But resting in the presence of God is absolutely incredible to think of. He's overcome our last enemy. And then a, another thing. He saves us from the consequences of our sin, which is death and separation from God. Because one day at the resurrection and judgment, he will say to his people, as they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. He saves his people from eternity. My name was written in the book of life before I was even a thought of my parents or anyone else. Your name, if you are a Christian here today, your name and your names were written in the book of life that you might spend eternity with the living God. He saves his people. And that doesn't mean he saves, saves all people. It's not a universalism. He saves those that he has chosen from before the foundations of the world. And at some point in their life, for me, it was in my 20s, when I heard the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that gospel was received as a gift from God, not a, I did nothing to earn it. I desired, I, 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 I was worthy of being cast into hell as a rebel in the sight of God, but rather than that, God chose to save me and bring me into a relationship with him, and one day to take me to glory that I might be with him for all eternity. Oh, what love. What love. This world will never love you like Jesus loves you. No one can love you like Jesus loves you. No one. I love my wife. I would die for her in a second. I love my children, my grandchildren. But the love that God has for them and for me and for you as believers is absolutely astounding as he lavishes his love upon us, sinners saved by grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He saves his people. It's kind of interesting as you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Sometimes it's amazing the people that he saves. In fact, Paul writes there, he doesn't necessarily save the wise, 
You know, there are a lot of there are a lot of people who are, have knowledge in this world, but in many cases, knowledge and wisdom is quite different. The writer of Pro Proverbs says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If people do not know God, they do not fear God, they really don't have true wisdom. Wisdom comes from God, comes from his word. It comes from the Holy Spirit who is his teacher and our teacher. So he doesn't save all people because they're wise in the worldly sense, nor because they are mighty, maybe they are generals in the army or presidents or whatever leader, all these leaders around the world. What have we found in them? Most of them are corrupt to the very core, not interested in the people, but interested in themselves and profiting themselves. Those people are not going to be saved. I mean, God can do that, but there's not many of them that will come at last into the kingdom of God. And he doesn't save many of the noble, because the noble are simply, most of the time, concerned about themselves. Who does he choose to save? He chooses those who are foolish. I confess to you at one time, I was a fool. That changed with Christ. He changes those who are weak. At one time, that would describe me. Maybe it would today. Weak in body, but not weak in soul. Not weak in the heart. Not weak in knowing God and wanting to know him even more intimately for whatever days he gives me and you in this world. And he sometimes and often does convert the base individuals, those who are so corrupt that every part of their being, every thought and imagination of their mind is continually evil all the time. Their hearts are desperately wicked, Jeremiah said. But even some of those who are living a base sort of life, some of those will be irresistibly drawn into a living relationship with the living God. God saves his people. He saves them to the uttermost. And when we talk about in the genealogy, I didn't read the genealogy, but I was listening to a, a sermon last week or two, and the pastor was going over the genealogy of Jesus, and, I, and that was pretty impressive. It took a lot of work. Some of those names I can't even pronounce properly. Dare I try. But nevertheless, he, he talked about how that genealogy was so messed up. There were so many wrong things in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So many wrong-headed people, as it were. And yet they're in, the, they're in the genealogy of Jesus. It's amazing. But I picked out just four of those people in that genealogy. One was Tamar. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was the son of Jacob. And Tamar's husband, given to him, given to her, was an evil person. And the scripture says that God took his life. His name was Ur. God took his life. 
The plan was the next brother would take Tamar. He did. But rather than consummating the relationship, he spilled his semen on the ground. He didn't want to impregnate her. And then Judah one day was walking a path, and Tamar decided that she would dress not in a, uh, a widow's garb, but in a different garb, covered her face. And as a result of that, Judah, her father-in-law, came to her and had relations. And out of that relationship came two sons. And once Judah was confronted by that, he said, Tamar was much more holy than me, because here was Judah on several occasions visiting what he thought was a prostitute, but it was his daughter-in-law. But she's in the genealogy of Christ. Rahab, who was a harlot in, in, in the... Jericho, thank you. Sometimes I get a little blank here. But in Jericho, and what did she do? She provided shelter for uh, Joshua and Caleb as they were spying out the land. And then you have Ruth was a Moabitess. And the Moabites were under the curse of God. But, but as it was, as it were, Naomi's sons married two Moabites. One of them was Ruth. And when Naomi wanted to go back to Israel, she told Ruth to stay with her people, and Ruth did not. She said, wherever you go, Naomi, I will go. Your God will be my God, a Moabite, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, Bathsheba, drawn to King David at his request, succumbed to his advances, became pregnant. David plotted the death of her husband Uriah on the front lines in battle, and they had a child. That child died. Later on, they had another child, Solomon. But Bathsheba is in the line of Jesus Christ, the genealogy. Tamar, acting as a prostitute. Rahab, as a prostitute. Ruth, as a Moabite. Bathsheba as one who allowed herself to be taken by King David. These women are in the genealogy of the Lord. What grace, what mercy, and not just for them. Look at yourself as I look at myself. What grace, what mercy that God allowed me at a certain time to hear a clear presentation of the gospel, to bring me to my knees, to bring me, to bring tears to my eyes, and pray, Lord Jesus, welcome, come in. I want to belong to you. I want to know you. I want to know you intimately. I want to serve you. I want to honor you with my life, with my words, and everything that constitutes my being. I, I could probably be one of the last, but he called. And the last thing I want to share with you this morning is Emmanuel. I 
think probably all of you know that, what it means. God is with us. And that's a, that's a marvelous thing to think about. As you sit there today, as you sit there, as a believer, God is with you. In some ways, that is kind of scary to think about, but it's so marvelous. He'll never leave us, he'll forsake us. There's no place you can go that he is not there. There's no thing that you can think that he doesn't know what you're thinking. There's no words that are going to come out of your mouth that he's not aware of what those words are before you say them. God is with us. I, I, I look back and just kind of trace that, that throughout the scriptures. And I think of Joshua. When Joshua took over from Moses, kind of an awesome thing to do because there were some numbers of around four or five million Israelites were heading toward the promised land. Moses is not going to allow them, uh, Moses is not going to be allowed to go into the promised land because he sinned out there in the desert. So God appoints Joshua to do that. And what does he do in Joshua chapter 1? He says to Joshua, Joshua, be of good courage. Do not be afraid. I will be with you, Joshua. Yes, there's four or five million people that I'm going to have to lead, and it's not going to be easy. But Joshua, I am with you. I am with you. He repeats that several times. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Meditate upon the word of God, the law of God, day and night, so that you may be prosperous and successful, Joshua. And that same thing is true for us. Meditate on the word of God and the law of God day and night so that you may be prosperous and successful, not in a worldly sense, but that you're walking with Jesus Christ, that you're doing the things that God has called you to do, to serve him, to honor him in all that you say and do. Meditate on the word day and night, Joshua. And even in the 23rd Psalm, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, who's with us? The Lord. I will be with you. I will never forsake you. You're never going to be alone. If you're a child of God, God knows you. He is with you. He will never let you go. Even into eternity. And I think lastly, uh, the other passage comes from Hebrews. And it was a difficult time when Hebrews was written. A lot of the Christians were suffering tremendously. Some of them were publicly ridiculed for their faith. You really believe in Jesus Christ? Are you so naive that you believe? in Jesus Christ, and if you were to say yes in that context, you would be ridiculed. What kind of person are you? You're not a thinker. You're not a part, really, of this world. Thank God. But they suffered humiliation. They suffered the loss of jobs from time to time because of their faith. They suffered their property being confiscated from them 
and they suffered martyrdom. But what does a writer of Hebrews say? Sort of like Hebrews chapter, chapter 11. I love that, that passage. It has all the names of those prominent figures in history in, the, in Israel and all that they did. It comes to the end of chapter 11, and these people are not named, but their names are written in the book of life, and they're suffering, they're going and living in the crags of the mountains, and they're being sawed in two, and, and yet their names are not written, but their names are written in the book of life, and no one will enter into the new heavens and new earth to those people enter along with them. God is with his people. He was with them in their suffering in the death. I'll read this last passage and that will conclude my sermon. It comes from chapter 8 of Romans and I know that you've been through there. I think Nick took you through Romans and I believe Steve Walton took a group through Romans before that. So you're steeped in theology in the book of Romans. Hear the word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. No one. Father, we come as sinners saved by grace to the throne of grace. And we thank you that you have an unending supply of grace and mercy. And you are patient with us, Lord. And Father, I would pray, and I trust every Christian here would pray, for those who do not know Jesus, that perhaps today or sometime in the near future, that the words of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ may ring out from those who believe to the unbeliever 
and that the unbeliever may be, may be moved from that broad road that leads toward destruction to the narrow road that leads to life. Oh Lord, help us to open our mouths that we might declare your glory and the glorious gospel. And that mountain that is being built as Micah records for us in Micah chapter 4, that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will enter into that mountain and to see it grow more and more every day as God draws his people from this world to a living relationship with, the, with the, uh, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord God, do a great work in us as believers. Do a great work. Use us as long as we have life and breath in our body. Help us never to be satisfied with what we've done, but help us to look forward to what needs to be done. Open the doors, Lord God. Open them wide that we might enter in and others may enter in to a living and a glorious relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do that, Lord? We pray that in the matchless name of our only Savior and God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.